Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the television and film industry, there's this phrase that people who work in development use, curse of knowledge. It describes the dynamic when a storyteller is first trying to communicate to an audience a story that he or she is crafting. The storyteller has the curse of knowledge. He knows the characters, the backstory, the plot all the ins and outs of the world, and the audience he's pitching it to, and ultimately writing it for, studio executives, conversely does not. Sometimes even when that writer is pitching his take on a book or property that the studio owns. I'm not kidding. The audience, the room, has absolutely no idea who these characters are, what they've been through, or where they're going, let alone any extraneous details of the world in which they inhabit. So the curse comes when the writer-storyteller is so entrenched in the story that they leave out big chunks of information that the room needs in order to follow or track what the hell the writer is talking about. When the world around the character is layered and complex, The curse is inevitable. To overcome it, one has to boil the story down to the basics and spend time explaining that. Who are these people? Where did they come from? What happened to them and why? What kinds of obstacles will come into their path because of who they are, where they came from, what they know, and the happenings in the world around them? Honestly, Doing this sucks. You just want to fly with your story. But it must be done, or you ain't going to sell that story, or yourself as the one to write it. And that's where things get even worse. Sometimes the room doesn't want to admit that they have no idea what you're talking about, even when you're sharing common knowledge stuff. Like, for example, when I use the term, a business front for the mob. To me, this isn't a curse of knowledge issue. Doesn't everyone know what a mob front is? Why explain that? Or worse, if I do explain it, will they think I'm patronizing them? When it comes to the first question, the answer is always no. Not everyone knows this. All common knowledge falls under the curse of knowledge category, never assume. The answer to the last question is, yes. Yes, they will always think you're patronizing them, even when they don't know. Because that's how egos work. It's a pickle. So here's one way to work it through. Whether you're the storyteller or the audience, 
Consider this basic truth. Even the simplest things occur in a complex world. And complex worlds have layers that require exploration. Find the complexity, boil it down through the layers, and explain that. Then no one's offended, embarrassed, or just flat out lost around what you're talking about. And then repeat it in a couple of different ways, in a couple of different places in the story. Repetition is key. Maybe even find a device, a way to share the knowledge you need them to grasp, make your common knowledge their common knowledge, and the curse is lifted. Let's use that example above. Business fronts for the mob. What the hell are those things anyway, and why do they exist? Well, they're businesses that appear to be solely owned by a person or group who organize it as a legal entity, often in an offshore tax haven. But hiding behind that legitimate name is another owner, who is a member of a crime syndicate, the mob. And by working through a business front, the criminal's participation in the business operation and profit sharing is obscured from law enforcement, especially the long arm of the law which stretches out from the IRS. Maybe the mobsters have a separate trust with the business partner who operates as a front, or more likely they're sitting behind a shell company or cluster of companies that are papered into the ownership, as was the case with Al Capone's LLCs. Concealed ownership is easily achieved where the company is organized offshore, Meyer Lansky's brainchild. But this isn't always necessary. It wasn't even back in the days of our bootleggers. An extra layer of protection comes if the business front is a businessman who is solid, meaning well-established in the legitimate world and a regular payer of taxes or at least filer of tax returns. In these cases, the syndicate behind the businessmen wants them in the bright light of day paying taxes, or enjoying tax loopholes, papering it all to legitimize the businesses. Arnold Rothstein perfected these relationships. The tax returns themselves help protect the business, open up banking channels, and therefore ensure the flow of profits. Next layer. Why would legitimate businessmen get into business with mobsters? Well, maybe they were extorted into it, as many targets are. Or maybe they were born into it, because their father was a front of one type or another, and that's what they inherited. Or maybe they couldn't get their business off the ground without men like Rothstein. Licentious fixers, who can hook you into every level of industry and government required to build your empire. Need city building permits for midtown skyscrapers? No problem. A mobster can fix that right up for you. Just use his concrete cartel to pour your foundation. 
whatever the circumstances, once you're in business with the mob, there's a consistent rule. What you own, they own. Forever. Your money is their money. Your product is their product. Your assets are their assets. In truth, from their perspective, it was never yours to begin with. Always theirs. You're less of a front than a guardian. You're the guardian of their treasure. Thirty years and six months after Germany unconditionally surrendered twice to Allied forces, one of Meyer Lansky's most successful businessman fronts, Louis Rosenstiel, lay semi-comatose on his deathbed, an evil hand placed over his own, animating his signature on a line in a document where X marked the spot. Rosenstiel built his wealth during the Prohibition era by being one of six businessmen granted a government license to manufacture medicinal spirits, legitimate booze. The document his signature was being forced onto decades later was a codicil, which is like a will. It would transfer Rosenstiel's assets over to the man attached to that evil hand and most likely to the mob bosses behind him. As with Arnold Rothstein before him, the man with the hand was known at the time as the world's most formidable fixer. The year was 1975. The evil hand was Roy Cohn's. And the boss behind Roy was Paul Castellano. We've spent three episodes of our first season exploring what our mobsters were up to and the surrounding terrain they found themselves in during the Second World War. We could spend 30 more. Just on Operation Underworld alone, there are at least 20 other critical players and fascinating storylines. But that big piece, the strategic move of Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky to turn Lucky into an asset of our intelligence community in order to keep their underworld empire rolling and growing, is also the piece necessary to grasp in order to understand the import of this history on the 1985 assassination that launched our series. Big Paul Castellano, then head of the Gambino crime family. And then, to see if there's a tie into the other 1985 mob hit from episode one, Evsi Agron, KGB agent and little godfather of the Russian mafia. For the latter, 
the F.C. Agron assassination, hang on to this thought, this knowledge, as we move through these last two episodes in our first season. Ask yourself, was our then ally in World War II, the Soviet Union and their KGB intelligence agency, the kind of ally turned foe that would have just forgotten about Operation Underworld? Or were and are they the kind of adversary who would have kept hold of every name and operative detail from that widely known event in our history between our underworld and our intelligence community. Less than four decades after World War II was the Soviet Union the kind of adversary and the KGB the kind of agency that would have preserved their knowledge and information on the intersection of our mobsters and spies and found a way to use that against us? Or would they have just forgotten all about the time when our intelligence community worked with the world's biggest gangsters? Did they just throw all that information out? Put a pin in your brain to hold that inquiry in place. For the Castellano assassination, we need to walk through the subsequent events and power moves that resulted from Lucky and Meyer's acts during the war. Operation Underworld had a seismic consequence that shifted the ground underneath the very syndicate that those two business partners formed and paved the way for Paul Castellano's rise and marked the spot for his inevitable final fall. When we last left Meyer and Lucky, they'd planned and executed a successful mafia op from Luciano's prison cell, one that led the Office of Naval Intelligence to move Luciano, per Lansky's request, from Danamara in upstate New York to a less Siberian location close to the city and mob playground of Saratoga Springs, Great Meadows. There, in his new prison cell, the ONI arrived, looking for Luciano's help. The help would be Operation Underworld, an official intelligence operation during World War II that engaged Luciano and Lansky in the war effort. It was war. The good guys, our intelligence community, used everything at their disposal to defeat pure evil and we should all be grateful that they did. Lucky got exactly what he wanted. The same thing the Navy and every other individual, intelligence agency, and nation fighting as allies sought. The same thing that only death could deliver for Louis Rosenstiel when it came to the men who owned him.
Freedom. The extent of the engagement between the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Underworld's Godfathers was the subject of a 1954 investigation led by New York State Commissioner William B. Herlins. The investigation was ordered by Governor Thomas Dewey. When Dewey granted Lucky Luciano clemency at the recommendation of the Navy for Luciano's role in Operation Underworld, Dewey's office came under fire with accusations of corruption, and the gangland special prosecutor turned governor wasn't having it. But the Herlands report was black-holed by naval intelligence until it was finally released in the mid-1970s. Before and after it was made public, the assertions grew wild over exactly what Luciano had done for the government in the war effort. Luciano's legend grew from being rightfully credited with getting word to men who worked the shipyards and docks to help the Navy keep an eye out for Hitler's U-boats and spies, to wrongfully, personally leading the Allied troops on the battlefield in taking Sicily from Mussolini. Even Luciano, who'd been hearing whispers of these tales long before the Herlands report was commissioned, tried to tamp down the hyperbole. How could he have been in Sicily when he was still wandering the prison yard? In his last testament, Luciano denies ever contacting the mafia in Sicily, which was the hyperbole. He never demanded their loyalty to the Allied invasion for an operation codenamed Operation Husky. I tend to believe him. Sometimes these gangsters downplay things to protect themselves, especially in a case like Lucky's, where he was to be deported back to Italy upon release from prison. If the Allied forces had failed in Operation Husky and Mussolini retained power, then Il Duce would be none too happy to receive Luciano when and if the ship carried him home. There's an argument to be made that Lucky was simply denying he gave any orders to the mafia in Sicily in order to protect himself in the event of that circumstance. But I don't think Luciano did this. I think that liar was actually telling the truth. Other than providing an inspiration to the Italian-American soldiers who were instrumental in retaking Sicily, I believe Luciano's account, that he did not send word to the Mafia Dons there, of which he was godfather as well, to assist us in any way. He helped in our ports, on our shores, within his territory. This was all spelled out in the Herlands report. But Italy? That was another domain. Despite Luciano's denials, plenty of folks still believed the war stories. Legends are funny that way, especially when they're about gangsters. But there was something that Luciano was involved with in Italy and everywhere else, while he was in prison, that he also tried to deny in his last testament. 
his heroin trafficking empire. Luciano pushed that all onto one of his underbosses, Vito Genovese, and professed to be at his wit's end with Vito over it. All of this was, of course, a lie. Luciano was still godfather, even from prison. He brought drugs, including heroin, into the syndicate back when it was the combination run by Johnny Torrio and Arnold Rostein. He was not helpless to the trafficking ambitions of an underboss and could have ordered Vito dead with a wave of one finger. So it is in his lie where if we follow the history, both before and after his incarceration and release, we find the truth. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you remember, before we entered the war, Vito Genovese had fled to Italy to beat a murder rap. Almost as soon as he arrived, Vito set up shop in the same smuggling trade that he'd been running for Luciano from New York. Heroin. Now in Italy, Vito was running drugs out of North Africa via Tunisia and across Europe via Turkey. Much of it ending back within our borders. Hell, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the same operation that Luciano had orchestrated in the days of Prohibition, and he sent Genovese over to Italy himself in order to lock it all down in the era of a world war. Remember what Elizabeth Friedman warned about the business of our rum-running bootleggers and how it had evolved over the decade before we entered the war. I'm afraid smuggling is here to stay. In the year just before Vito Genovese fled to Italy, Luciano was sent away by Thomas Dewey for that other vice racket he perfected under Torrio's tutelage. Prostitution. From the cold of his first prison home, Danamara, in upstate New York, Luciano appointed Vito acting boss of the Luciano crime family. The moment Vito fled, a year later, Lucky passed the mantle on to Frank Costello. This is important to note. Vito was Luciano's first choice, not Costello. And had he not been running from a murder rap, Vito would likely have inherited the family without a struggle. 
once Luciano was given clemency and released after the war, only to be deported himself back to Italy. More on that in a moment. Back to the mantle passing from Genovese to Costello. Lucky was still the godfather, still the boss of bosses. But the syndicate Italians needed a named, appointed boss on the outside who represented him. Frank Costello filled this role, and with his deep connections into the political and legitimate business world, he was better positioned to get things done as a racketeer, a thinker, a strategist at the poker table holding all the cards. Vito Genovese was not this. He was pure gangster, and he resented his replacement by Frank Costello. This is not to say that Costello wasn't frightening to the core. It's just a matter of where lines are drawn and how the business is run and where the business is heading. Both men were ruthless, but only Vito would suck at the teat of a psychopathic dictator like Mussolini in order to run Luciano's smack. Because business was all that mattered. That's what made Luciano choose Genovese first. The money. Always, always the money. Heroin was a huge profit center. All of Vice was. And with Luciano and the Slammer, Vito Genovese was the boss on the street who was already known as the King of Vice. Frank Costello could fix his rackets all day long, but that's not what's at the beating heart of a smuggling empire. Product is. Costello was a genius at manipulating and lifting the barriers to the flow of profits, of business operations. He made sure that business could get done, but Vito? Vito ran product. And he'd go gangster all day long in order to find it, smuggle it, and flood our communities with it. The difference between these two underbosses of Luciano's would echo decades later when gangster underbosses Sammy the Bull Gravano and John Gotti ordered a spray of bullets into racketeer Big Paul Castellano. And that parallel was never more stark than when Vito Genovese swept through the syndicate with a vengeance, leaving underboss blood in his wake. By the end of the war, with Mussolini defeated, Vito Genovese took his bets with the United States and returned to face the murder charge. On June 2, 1945, he was arraigned and pleaded not guilty. Almost a year later to the day, the case against him would fall apart, and the charges would be dropped. But in the interim, Genovese was indisposed. He'd miss the farewell 
that his bootlegging cousins were all attending. On the cold morning of February 9, 1946, the SS Laura Keene sat docked at Pier 7 in Brooklyn, awaiting a passenger for one of her final transatlantic sailings. His first stop was not to her. Charles Lucky Luciano was saying his goodbyes to family on Ellis Island. He'd earned his clemency from Governor Dewey, was paroled and released, and immediately brought to Ellis Island for deportation back to Italy. With perks. He was the godfather. The Laura Keene was packed with women, booze, friends, and a good time. There would be a blowout send-off party for Lucky while the ship was still docked at his pier. Albert Anastasia, Lucky's friend from the old neighborhood and his underboss in the new one, arranged it so no press got wind of the send-off. Of course, Lansky was there. As were Bugsy, Costello, Longies Wilman, Adonis, Banano, and a young Carlo Gambino from Brooklyn, and the rest. Then they were gone, and Lucky was left on the Laura Keene with New York City Mayor Bill O'Dwyer's personal man, Murray Weinstein, who, at the mayor's order, would make the trip with Lucky to be sure he wasn't bothered by immigration and had everything he needed along the way. That's power. I felt like, all of a sudden, I was alone. I really felt like I was in the middle of nowhere. I began to get this real sour feeling in my stomach. And when the pilot horn started to blow, the sound of it seemed to fill the inside of my belly. The only other time in my whole life that I had this kind of experience was when the gates closed behind me up at Danamora. It was the cold end of a hot era. With the Godfather exiled to Italy and Vito Genovese soon to be released back onto the streets, the original five families organized by Luciano in the 1930s were about to go through some things. A lot happened in the decade after Luciano's deportation. He didn't just stop being the Godfather because of his relocation. Everyone back in New York and across the syndicate's territories from state to state, kept the balls rolling as usual. There were territorial disputes here and there, but business was booming. Lansky had orchestrated the transition from illegal booze to legal booze and illicit gambling to full-scale casinos. The business fronts he'd been working since the days of Arnold Rothstein were paying off. And in the heyday of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, the feds were, by and large, leaving Lansky and Luciano's men alone. 
It was a boom for business and personnel. There was a wave of youngsters on the heels of Bonanno and Gambino who were proving themselves worthy of rising to leadership positions within both the Italian and Jewish sides of the syndicate. Lansky had Mickey Cohen out in Los Angeles running the West Coast heroin trade with corruption and psychopathy, while Joe Colombo, Vincent Giganti, Vinny the Chin, and Constantino Paul Castellano, Big Paul, were on the rise under Profaci, Genovese, and Gambino, respectively. The next generation of underbosses was in place. But the mantle of Capo di Tutti Capi was still in play. By the mid-1950s, Vito Genovese was finally ready to make his move. And his first act for ensuring that he captured the title of Godfather was to put a bullet in Frank Costello. In early 1956, Costello lost another of the syndicate's original crew to Italy, Joe Adonis, a man who likely would have stood by Costello to seize the Godfather mantle, chose deportation to Milan over prison in New Jersey for an illegal gambling conviction. That left one powerful advocate for Costello back in Vito's orbit, Albert Anastasia. But Vito considered that with Costello gone, he'd have the power vacuum he needed to ensure Anastasia rotated around his son. At least that was the gamble Vito Genovese took. On May 2nd, 1957, Vito sent his young enforcer, Vinny the Chin, to Frank Costello's apartment. On Costello's return home from dinner out, Gigante followed him into the lobby, his gun aimed at Frank's head. The chin fired and missed, although he didn't know it. Vinny left Frank crumpled on a lobby couch, blood coming out of his head. Miraculously, the bullet only grazed Costello's skull. He was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, where he recovered. Vito Genovese was screwed. Lucky got word immediately over in Italy. This was an unsanctioned hit of his chosen successor, Frank Costello. But Frank himself had had enough. He was tired. The business wasn't as fun as it used to be. He'd been raked over the coals a few years before by the Senate Kefauver Committee. He was fighting a tax evasion charge that had been dragging on for eons. And now, that angry punk Genovese 
was sending his thugs to put a bullet in his head. Frank was powerful enough. He didn't need this headache. Literally. But an unsanctioned hit was an unsanctioned hit. Vito Genovese knew what was coming for him from Luciano, no matter where Frank Costello stood. He had one choice, and he took it to Carlo Gambino. Five months later, on October 25th, two masked gunmen, under the orders of Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino, entered the barbershop at the Park Sheraton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. In the barber's chair, warm cloth over his face, sat Albert Anastasia. The gunman opened fire. A startled Anastasia fired back, but into their reflections in the mirror. The gunman laid waste to one of Lucky Luciano's oldest friends and remaining bosses of Luciano's original five families. The two hits, one fatal, one not, but both successful in supplanting power, led to a new commission meeting, less than a month after Anastasia's murder. Even Frank Costello was in on the order. The structural leadership of the old syndicate, which had been left vague and unresolved with Luciano's pardon by Dewey and deportation to Italy, would be sorted out in a civilized manner, once and for all. The meeting was held in the country, in Appalachian, New York. Every boss and underboss was there. Over 50 gangland legends gathered in a farmhouse. And it was busted by the feds. This is that now famous event that finds its way into mafia dramas and comedies where we see gangsters in pinstripe suits running through cornfields. Fifty mobsters were apprehended, including a young Paul Castellano, who would earn his loyalty cred with Carlo Gambino by keeping his mouth shut with his arrest. Still, the meeting wasn't foiled before the structure for the new Italian syndicate was worked out and reformed into La Cosa Nostra. Vito Genovese got what he wanted. The Luciano family was renamed after him. Vito was now ruler of Manhattan and inheritor of Lucky's personal treasure chest. The others would also be renamed to reflect their new bosses. Either at that moment, an appellation, or within a few short years that followed. The five families were set. Lucchese, Colombo, Banano, Gambino, and Genovese. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. For William and Elizabeth Friedman... The decade after the war brought a different kind of struggle than what was happening with the gangsters she once hunted. William was hospitalized for severe depression, and Elizabeth put everything to the side to be at his own. After what he'd put his mind through in service for our nation, William was battling everything from physical ailments to suicidal thoughts, all while receiving round-the-clock care. Desperate for a solution, he signed up for an experimental treatment conducted at George Washington University Hospital. Electric shock therapy. William Friedman, one of the world's most extraordinary minds, was having a tongue depressor placed in his mouth, while dozens of electric currents were sent through the synapses of his brain. Eventually, he would make his way back home, where Elizabeth continued to care for him in ways only a mind equal to his own could comprehend and act on. There were moments where she came across him sitting at his desk, pen or pencil in hand, with a point to the paper. And he was just frozen, stuck, unable to manifest what was in his mind onto the paper. Without saying a word, Elizabeth would make her way to him, gently place her hand on his, and this touch from his beloved would activate William. His thoughts made their way out of his mind and onto the page. The expertise behind those thoughts of William and Elizabeth had evolved since the war. Their work of pencil to paper, decrypting coded messages, had moved from the scientific method expressed in Elizabeth's handwritten columns to machines that effortlessly cracked code. Although the core processes of cryptanalysis remained the Friedman's invention, technology had taken over. With the demands for their talents and their ability to keep up with them winding down, both Elizabeth and William turned their attention to their personal library, the same project that William had wanted to wrestle from the clutches of George Fabian years before. They wanted to see their library of work documented for the historical record and get it into the right hands. In the process of cataloging it, a bureaucratic rule change 
upended that dream. The National Security Agency, whose early days were founded by Elizabeth herself, was officially formed by President Truman in 1952, and they were classifying all of their processes, contemporary and historic. Agents swept into the Freedman home and took everything, as upsetting and actually ridiculous as it was. William and Elizabeth did what they'd always done for their country. They shouldered this painful moment, put their heads down, and helped pack up their life's work for the agency. What was left of their archives, they donated to the Marshall Foundation. But their irrepressible spirit would carry on. As their last act of work together, the Freedmen's dove back into the code-breaking puzzle in which they first fell in love. Since George Fabian had burned the Freedmen's work that he held hostage from them, they revisited the Baconian theory to prove once again, and for all time, that Mrs. Gallup's theory was horseshit. It brought the Freedmen's joy, and of course some splashy headlines when they could demonstrate to the world that William Shakespeare did indeed write his place and proved that the toxic conspiracy theory that sought to rob a poet of his brilliance had no place in a society where science and learning were integral to the principles of democracy that kept us all free. This would be true as long as we had protectors, like Elizabeth and William, guardians of our most sacred treasures in the realm of the light. William Friedman would suffer a heart attack and pass at 12.15 a.m. on November 12, 1969. And the world, connected to intelligence, immediately responded. More than 750 notes and letters from around the world would pour into Elizabeth's home in the days after William's death. Everyone, from present and past heads of state, to young co-breakers that they'd schooled, felt the epic loss. On his tombstone, Elizabeth set the phrase in stone that had carried them each over the course of their careers. Knowledge is power. And she had done it in the Baconian font to hide a secret message in cipher except this one was real. W.F.F. Her husband's initials. Our heroine would live on another 11 years, tending to her interests, her grown children, and an occasional request from an agency or individual who wanted to pick her brain. 
She reached the age of 88 before her own heart failed, passing on October 31, 1980. Requesting cremation, her ashes were spread over her husband's grave at Arlington National Cemetery, and her name was carved below his on the tombstone that she designed. Beloved wife, Elizabeth Smith Friedman, 1892 to 1980. Our couple who fell in love, hovering over one another's shoulders, creating a new science that would go on to save the free world, would rest in eternity in the same embrace. I said earlier that while Luciano spent the years leading up to Prohibition's repeal, solidifying an industry of vice, including a heroin-smuggling empire, Meyer Lansky was touring America and the planet, finding ways to launder the profits and legitimize the business sectors. This may be an oversimplification of the division of roles between the two business partners, but it speaks very specifically to their individual natures and how those natures complemented one another to affect massive profiteering and growth. One such effort in the legitimate business sector was their first business sector, booze. With repeal on the horizon, Myers, Canadian and European suppliers like the Bronfmans at Seagram's, could sell to anyone. The American market would be wide open, and Meyer could either build a food and beverage retail and restaurant empire, certainly he had some of those establishments, including casinos, or he could have a stake in his own distilleries in America, which didn't involve customs. One less government agency to worry about was always a smart move. Now, although Louis Rosenstiel would deny it to his grave, there's enough evidence to demonstrate that Meyer Lansky had a stake in Rosenstiel's empire. Meyer also had Malaska. The Malaska Corporation was formed in Ohio in 1933, just 10 days before liquor became legal again. It began as an operation of the Cleveland crew. The businessmen fronts for syndicate lieutenants Mo DeLitz and Chuck Polizzi, among others. Meyer used his father-in-law to open the business. And the business was molasses, brought in from the Caribbean, Cuba in particular. Molasses as a sugar substitute was widely used in the production of illicit alcohol, and molasca 
even though it could have just been a legal distillery, was a front company for the continuation of producing booze domestically. There's no clear record of just how many giant distilleries Malaska operated across the United States. But according to Lansky reporter Hank Messick, they were the largest ever found by the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax Unit of the IRS. From Ohio, they spread across the East Coast territory of the syndicate and stretched as far west as Kansas City. Most of Malaska's booze went to legal liquor companies, which sprung up after repeal. Some syndicate-owned, like Prendergast and Davies Company, located in New York City and run by a man named Herbert Heller, who was Louis Rosenstiel's brother-in-law. Rosenstiel even owned the building where Prendergast was housed, and his main liquor company, Shenley's Distilleries, the one that legally operated with a medicinal spirits license throughout Prohibition, had some big gangsters on the payroll. The names were employed by Rosenstiel's distilleries across the syndicate's territories in even more interesting areas, from Pennsylvania to Kentucky and reaching out west. Since 1920, this man and his company was one hell of a front. In his personal life, Rosenstiel was openly close friends and often hosted two interesting characters, Meyer Lansky and J. Edgar Hoover. To get to the bottom of that combo, perhaps the answer lies in the fact that the real owner of Prendergast and Davies Company was not the frontman brother-in-law of Louis Rosenstiel, but the legendary combination man, Al Capone's mentor, and Arnold Rostin's former partner, Johnny Torrio. Louis Rosenstiel had another significant longtime associate, one that the son of a New York Supreme Court justice also counted as a friend, a high-powered fixer out west, who Mickey Cohen called his godfather, Artie Samish. And that state Supreme Court judge was none other than Tammany man Al Cohn, the father of Roy Cohn, the hand that forced Rosenstiel's signature onto the codicil to get what was left of a dying man's empire back into the treasure chest from which it was born. These were men who guarded over the inner workings of the smuggling empire. They were the protectors of Luciano and then Vito Genovese's global business venture. 
It was a business that one Cosa Nostra man would shun, would fight over with his underbosses. He rose to a position as boss of the Gambino crime family two decades after the Appalachian Conference, when Carlo Gambino died at home of natural causes. By this time, in 1976, he'd mastered everything from Wall Street to construction to the meat industry, turning entire mafia-owned businesses legitimate, or controlling the labor unions and contract bidding where it was not. He was a racketeer, not a gangster. He wanted nothing to do with drug smuggling once he attained the designation of boss of bosses. This man was Paul Castellano. Roy Cohn was his attorney. And by 1985, when the Russian mafia was trafficking heroin from the Soviet Union territories of Central Asia into Brighton Beach, his underbosses, John Gotti and Sammy Gravano, wanted him dead. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.